0: We're not, we the people are not engaging in these huge human issues, whether it's mental health, drug addictions, homelessness. And we're abdicating this responsibility entirely to government who's gonna do the best that they can to create policy, but they can't They can't solve all these
1: problems. What is the real cause of homelessness? Is looking for a solution to this issue even the right approach? In this episode, founder of Mobile Loaves & Fishes, Alan Graham, shares his journey towards building a lifestyle of service that aims to transform the fix and repair mentality of our society towards the poor. We have to connect
0: each other. See, we live in this catch and release, fix and repair society. I want to bring you in repair you of all your uh, disabilities and then release you back into the world repaired for you to go out and do things on and then I move on to the next person but you know the world actually doesn't work that way it turns out that Charlie's not very repairable you are who you are whatever it is about you that irritates other people about you like your mom your dad your siblings your spouse those things haven't been
1: fixed christians are called to lead change both inside and outside of the church by building communities not two or four but with those who are most marginalized and forgotten this is living the call alan graham welcome to the show Awesome. Great Dick and Charlie. Good to be with you, my friend. It is so good to have you. You know, I I, I tell people oftentimes, because this is part of the byproduct of working in Hollywood, that like celebrity doesn't do anything for me, right? I've been I've been around uh famous people for you know 20 plus years, and whenever I have occasion to interact with them and people say, Did you get a picture? Did you get a signature? And I'm, I, I honestly I'm like, well, that's just not that's just not who I am. Um, and but certain people to me are, you know, very impressive and and people that I want to know more about and get close to one of them I mentioned on the show not too long ago is a philosopher by the name of Peter Craft, who's also a Catholic guy, and I got a chance to meet him, and I, I you know, I, I was definitely fanboying, fanboying out. And you, my friend, are another one of those personages, so I want no. you to know that. Well, <laughs> and humble, I'm, humbled and honored by that. Yeah, thanks. Well, no, of course. And, you know, a lot of it is because, Alan, you know, I've been, um, obviously we have in our hearts a, a calling to, to help in our homeless brothers and sisters, and I look at what you do, and I know it's not just you, and I get that, and it's at the end of the day, it's God, but the, what you do and what you've inspired as, as a big, big, you know, hallmark for me and a big model for me that's guiding a lot of the work that we're doing here, so it's a great privilege to have you.
0: Well, thank you, man.
1: It's a great privilege to be on with you, so. Your story is really interesting, and you have a, a knack for communicating a lot with very few words. But if somebody was going to ask you how you ended up sitting where you're sitting, where would you even start with that?
0: Well, um, if I really start from the beginning, it would probably be uh, the only memory that I have of my mom and dad together as a husband and wife under the same roof Mm. Uh, was when I was about four years old and my mom was standing on her bed with a knife in her hands threatening my dad. And um, and that was, you know, for me, the beginning, although uh, it wasn't the beginning for her of a lifetime of mental health uh, trauma uh, for her. And, you know, when I look back and and weave together uh, my story, uh, the impact of who my mother uh, was and really continues to be, even though she's uh, long gone uh, to heaven, uh would have to be a big one
1: Mm. and that you know that that mental health dynamic which is, you know, prevalent a, a lot in the work that, that, that you do uh, in, you know, in, in serving our homeless brothers and sisters is, is quite the marker, right? Quite an important thing. And I, what I've found is there's a lot of misunderstandings, too, about the whole subject of, of mental health and its role in the dynamic of homelessness. What's your, what's your answer to folks when they say, um, you know, things like that or have those suspicions about the connection between mental health and homelessness?
0: Well, um, you know, I've done a number of talks, uh, Charlie, uh, and invariably we, we get in or around that, that very issue. And I always ask people, or really, I actually make the statement I know that in each of your families is somebody battling uh, addictions, uh, alcoholism, or a mental health issue. And I don't know that I've ever been challenged otherwise uh, Hmm. to that. And and this would be thousands of people. And so I I have to assume that almost without question, there's none of us ever in the history of mankind that uh, have not had this uh, disability or ability within, within each of our families. And so... You, you can never point to that as being a causal factor to the issue of homelessness. And, and that leads us to believe that uh, if all of our families, in fact, have these dynamics within them, um, then what happens to those men and women that find themselves stranded on our street corners and under our bridges? And we believe that it was a profound breakdown of their family unit in their forged family unit, their extended family. Uh, And so that's kind of where we stand in that whole conversation. But a lot of people from the streets do have mental health issues, and many of them found themselves in families that couldn't handle or manage that situation uh, at all.
1: It also kind of begs the question in a way, right? So even if, let's assume, and it's not the case, but let's assume 100%, of people experiencing homelessness have a mental health issue. Even if you start with that, I always think when I hear those kind of objections, like following up with, so what, you know, or what does that mean? Like, does, so does that mean that because somebody is mentally ill, they somehow fall into a category that's unfit to help?
0: Well, uh, we use a lot of things in order to excuse ourselves uh, from actually uh, serving some of the most despised outcasts, lost and forgotten. So um, I would say that that mental health issue would be uh, close up there to the top of the list. Probably the number one item is that uh, they have chosen to live that lifestyle or mm. uh, are, are they're lazy as if any human being ever on the face of the planet would choose to be homeless and a crack addict and a prostitute or a heroin junkie or uh, uh, whatever, just, but we don't, Oftentimes, we don't use lo- logic in these, uh, in these situations. Yeah, in these discussions.
1: Well, And also, it kind of doesn't um, address the issue of that kind of amplification effect that the lifestyle of homelessness actually has on whatever problems you, you've got, right? So it's almost like this... Uh, you, you, you bring into it something and it, it kind of amplifies, at least in my experience. So if you've got some challenges and we all have brokenness and trauma and things that we deal with, but when we're out there and we're basically on, you know, in this battlefield of homelessness and you're kind of looking around every corner, seeing what might hurt you, what might take something away from you, whatever challenges we have get amplified by, by being in that situation.
0: Well, I come out of a a broken family. My father left us uh, when my mother was institutionalized uh, that first time when I was four. Um, He left us and then he remarried and, uh, uh, you know, so I come from a a very profoundly and catastrophically broken uh, family, uh, but it wasn't an obliterated uh, broken family. Uh, When I got in trouble when I was in my teenage years, uh, arrested for car theft uh, when I was 14 years old on Easter Sunday, 1970, March 29th, 1970, Easter Sunday. I had two tickets to see Led Zeppelin that night, uh, Charlie, and uh, uh, but instead I was going to spend the night in the Harris County Juvenile Detention Center. In fact, I spent two weeks in the Harris County Juvenile Detention Center. My mother was not in any place to come and get me at that time, and. Um, and my father, in his uh, great wisdom, allowed me to marinate in that place for uh, a, a lot longer than I wanted to. But you know what? My father came and got me, mm. ultimately. And so mm. even though uh, I had this broken family, uh, ultimately, my dad showed up and, and pulled me out of there and uh, uh, was working to get me back on, on track. And uh, ultimately, he was successful.
1: Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, uh, thank God for unanswered prayers, because if you didn't have that time to stew a little bit and marinate, who knows, uh, who knows how, uh, what would have happened and what wouldn't have happened. I want to, I want to draw on something, Alan, that you said a moment ago, you said it twice already. And I know that you're very intentional with the words that you use, which is why they're interesting to me. You've talked about one of the core insights, and I've used this, by the way, and I'll share with you what feedback has come back to me when I say this, but I'm curious about you. You've used this terminology of the root cause of homelessness being a catastrophic loss of family. Now, I affirm that is true because I've walked in, I've lived it um, in different ways than you have. But I also wonder about the utilization of those words, right? First of all, catastrophic, right? And second of all, family and the loss of family. Give us a sense of where that insight came from and what kind of response you get from folks when you share that with them.
0: Well, the, the insight comes from, uh, you know, when, the, when we began the truck operation and going out on the streets every night feeding. Uh, people in 1998, it it because the people that were serving and those being served were on the same side of the serving counter. Uh, it created this one-on-one human connection between those that were serving and those being served. And then in 2003, in May of 2003, um, I started going out on the streets, spending the night, uh, and taking people with me, and. you you begin to develop very intimate relationships with the men and women. And the common denominator was nobody uh, came out of the Ozzy and Harriet, uh, Ward and June Cleaver uh, nuclear family fabrication that Madison Avenue created during the 1950s and 60s. Um, And you begin to pay attention to these things. And then in 2008, um, uh, having proclaimed this um, I, for a number of years, I read a book called Beyond Homelessness: Christian Faith and a Culture of Displacement. and um, in there it began to talk about the phenomenology of home, and that again began to uh, uh, sink in how powerful and uh, and necessary a family and a forged family is. and then, uh, a couple of years ago, I think in 2020, uh, right around COVID time, March, I believe, David Brooks published an article in the Atlantic Magazine called "The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake," and um, I've got my uh, article right here, and it's uh, highlighted to the gills all all throughout. Uh, "The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake," and what a what a caustic! Article to say in a Roman Catholic environment mm. uh, because of our pro family beliefs. But where this guy goes with this is so incredible, and how important the Forge family is, but how disconnected we've become from community here in the United States of America and, and growing a- around the world. But it started here yeah, in the United States of America. And um, and then last year's uh, publication by Oprah Winfrey and uh, Dr. Bruce Perry of uh, the book "What Happened to You" uh, uh, now puts uh, you know the research meat uh, on the bone of all, all of our beliefs. So you, you believe you begin to believe a thought, and then um, uh, over time uh, that thought can be tested and uh, tried and uh, and it's more true today for us than it, it has ever been.
1: I think that it also defies some of the, those earlier kind of you know I, I don't know if it, it, you wouldn't call them myths because it they, they does drug use and mental health and mental issues do overlap pretty strongly in in this in this field and in this work. But it does kind of demystify a little bit, nevertheless, this notion that the reason we have these problems is. Because people are on drugs, or we don't have enough jobs, or because we don't have enough affordable housing, all of those things are part of this, right? But what I really love that's arresting about that idea of a catastrophic loss of family is it really does just get right down to the heart of what this thing's all about, right? Which is, if we we could have been, you know, God could have saved us anyway. He could have saved us all by ourselves, and he could have saved us if we pushed the right button, but he decided to save us in the context of a family. And so that part, when that is, you know, broken up, um, needs to be somehow healed, right? And dealt with. And I think that that Terminology, I'll tell you when I when I've used it, and I have, I've borrowed liberally from you, my friend. So when when I talk about catastrophic loss of family. I get some combination, in some cases, people, first of all, nobody's used to hearing that. Like, they're, they're used to hearing, you know, something about a policy prescription or something about, you know, building, you know, tiny homes. And all the emphasis is on the stuff that's, like, the, in orbit around the main issue. So I find it, it it can be very arresting, and it can even be shocking to people to hear that, right? When they find out I'm a Christian, after that, they kind of assume, well, that's just like a Christian thing, maybe. But it really is at the heart of what this issue is about, which is if people don't have those to call their own, if they don't have that association, then it, it, it's, it, everything is that much more a challenge. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't deny
0: the uh, exacerbating issues of addiction and mental health issues and affordable housing and living sure. wages. We, we don't deny those. but Sure. But what happens is, as we go focus on, say, mental health, um, as if we fix people, that's going to solve their homelessness, and that, that that's not going to work. Uh, if we raise the living wage, uh, uh, that that's not going to work for the uh, chronically homeless. Uh, it, it's just... And, you know we need to work on all of those things, but what we really need to do is welcome people back into community, uh, and and that's going to be the key where every human life is valued for who they are, and that we attempt to discover um, God's given gifts for uh, those brothers and sisters so that they can uh, be cultivating and caring people in our society, and. and but it's that piece of it is messy. Yeah. we just want to fix it and walk away.
1: Yeah. And that's another word that came in. So I'm, I'm talking to you on the heels of having spent three days out of Community First in Austin and actually living in the community. And I think I heard that word messy about a half a dozen times in the context of the symposium that you guys all ran last week. But but that's true. Do you think that's one of the core issues that keeps people from getting more actively involved?
0: Well, look—it's uh, t- dealing with our brothers and sisters is a is a messy it, look. Dealing with family is a mess, uh, and um, uh, that's just how it is. And we've become so hyper individualistic, where everything is focused on me, myself, and I, uh, that we have failed to understand the negative impact of the me myself and i on the broader uh, community and, uh, uh, and and anthropologically uh, you know charlie this is we've we've always lived in family we've yeah. always lived in community this this is a modern uh, phenom that doesn't even measure on the anthropological timeline mm. it, it's been so short But the damage has been so deep and broad uh, as a result of what we've done, really, almost entirely. I I would say that the Industrial Revolution launched and the urbanization here in America uh, launched that, but uh, very deeply since World War II, post-World War II. Development, The development of the subdivision, the single-family house, uh, the large lots, the eight-foot-tall privacy fences, swimming pools, sport courts, and barbecue pits in our backyards, all, all the things that separated us from community.
1: Yeah, and that's another one. I'm going to hit you with another one of the words that I caught you saying one time that's one of those super intentional ones and that you described That way, that urbanization, that, you know, fencing, that division, you at some point described that as the sarcophagus of the sort of single family way to live. And again, that was one that hit me sideways. And I was like, you know, that one's got to, you know, cause a stir at cocktail parties.
0: Yeah. Well, we call it the hermetically sealed uh, uh, single family sarcophagus that we call the American dream. You know, with electric garage door openers, front Porsches the size of an iPhone 6, uh, backyards with eight foot tall privacy fences, with our swimming pool, sport courts and uh, barbecue pits. So, uh, and, and to me, people get it. They, they
1: realize how alone they are inside what what appears to be the American dream. Yeah, but nevertheless it is just putting us at a greater distance and then you add on top of that the 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 sort of distance that a lot of the screens and kind of one to one media have on folks and it's it it creates I think even a fragmentation beyond beyond that potentially.
0: Yeah. No. Uh that, yeah, I mean if you add in uh, all the multimedia stuff going on right now and uh uh the digital nature of our world and social media and stuff like that. It's, uh, uh, and, and then the, the pandemic, frankly, uh, in the past couple of political seasons have, uh, accentuated this, uh, this disconnect. It's a vitriolic disconnect now.
1: Hmm. Do you think it relates to this kind of scarcity mindset that you, you've touched on a lot, in your work, this kind of notion. You, you you gave an example, if I'm remembering correctly, about at one point in the development of Community First, somebody, you guys had this big gardening operation. And if you looked at it on a you know balance sheet, it cost X and it was delivering Y. And somebody said, or somebody could have said, hey, why don't you just like sunset that thing? Because that's not really working. But the, the fact of the gardening was that community moment was that moment to drive that point of connection and you couldn't see in dollars and cents maybe the benefit but nevertheless it was, worse, it was worth doing is, is everything that's going on with the kind of sarcophagus that whole hermetically sealed universe that we tend to live in is that an extension of this kind of maybe scarcity way of looking at things that it's like if it doesn't you know if it doesn't pencil out it's sort of not worth doing, and it's all about me? Well, I saw a little uh, anecdotal uh, study done,
0: uh, you know, where they, uh, where they asked children, young children, where chicken comes from. And uh, they imagined a, a tree with these uh, sealed packages of chicken wow. on the tree and uh as opposed to a chicken running around the yard that you had to harvest uh, uh their viewpoint was that it was growing on a tree just like an apple or an orange uh, and um and and so that was that was a complete disconnect uh, for those kids and never in history would that have ever happened except in this modern world and then um there was also a taste test done one time with a bunch of uh Children, where they um, uh, had to meet a a real strawberry uh, and Twizzlers, and which tastes more like strawberry. And the Twizzlers overwhelmingly won. won. And, you know, and I'm not opposed to Twizzlers, but (laughs) uh, they don't taste like strawberries. And you want to eat. Far more strawberries than you do Twizzlers in your life uh, uh, to be healthy. So um, I think the farming piece of it does so much. It's it's an invitation for people to understand where things come from, and frankly, uh, God is the uh, the source and summit uh, of that, not the grocery store. And, um, and 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 I think when people get together and successfully grow things, whether it's, you know, things of beauty like flowers or, or, or good things uh, to eat, uh, that that has a positive impact on our uh, dopamines and serotonins and uh, oxytocin and the things that we need uh, in, in life. Um, and, you know, plus the beauty of the farm. Uh, I mean, you've seen our farm. It's 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 beautiful. Makes you want to eat a salad. Actually, it's just uh, it's kind of weird. So, and right now the mulberries are blowing off the trees, and it's uh, you 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 probably got to taste the mulberries uh, while you were here, and uh, that experience all by itself, uh, where you just walk up to a tree and pluck it and eat it right there. I I, I don't know, man. That does something special about for the human person.
1: I bet. What do you make, Alan, of, um, you know, because you, you touched on food and, I, you know, the, the idea of sharing a meal, obviously, not only is it biblical, but there's a, a thousand and one reasons why it's such a great conduit or vehicle to getting into relationship with people, right? Right. Um, and and it, and it kind of that brings me to um, another concept that I think you embody and and all of you in, in the work that you do embody in the work that you do, but it's also a bit of a disconnect between how you know regular folk may may view the world, and that's the whole concept of relationship versus transaction. Because we live in a world where even doing good, and I'm putting it in air quotes, we can make ourselves feel real good about doing a thousand things. But it's not so much the what you're doing, it's the way that you're doing it. At least this is what I found in my experience, where even doing things that are good are still viewed in a kind of very transactional way, right? I'm going to go drop something off at the Goodwill. I'm going to go help at the soup kitchen. I'm going to go do all these things, which are all good. They're objectively good, and they're not uh, not to be frowned on, but it's still looked at as a kind of a transaction, like I I check a box and therefore this thing happens. And that's different than what happens in a garden. That's different than what happens at a a dining room table.
0: Well, what we wanted to be able to do, uh, Charlie, from the very beginning was to connect human to human, heart to heart, using the number one conduit to do so, which happens to be food. And there are many conduits that we can leverage in order to get that connection uh, going. And, um, uh, uh, you know, food uh, turns out uh, to be a pretty big one, uh, clothing turns out to be a big one. Uh, but it's gonna be better for you to go pick up a friend, take them to Walmart, and spend the time with them in the automobile and inside the Walmart, picking out the clothes. Uh, going to the register and paying for that than it is to just drop your clothes off at Goodwill, which is a good thing. And we can still continue uh, to do that. But why not go to the Goodwill uh, with your money, even with the used clothes, and help somebody pick out clothing uh, from the Goodwill? We have to connect each other. See, we live uh, in this catch-and-release, fix-and-repair society. I want to bring you in Mm-hmm. Um Repair you of all your uh, disabilities, and then release you back into the world, repaired um, for you to go out and do things on, and then I move on to the next person. But you know, the world actually doesn't work that way. It turns out that Charlie's not very repairable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are who you are, and whatever it is about you that irritates other people about you, like your mom, your dad, your siblings your spouse, um, uh, those things haven't been fixed. You might have moderated those things. Uh, I've got you know, a 40-year 40 relationship, 41 years, with my absolute categorical best friend on the planet, the mother of our five children, uh, grandmother, uh, partner in this ministry, could not have done this ministry. There, there are things about each other to this day that just irritate the pee wad out of each other, <laughs> and that's and that's life. And yeah. what, what happened is is that uh, I've learned to tolerate her disabilities, and thank God she has learned to tolerate mine.
1: Mm. Yeah, kind of. It brings to to mind this thought, which I've seen much more in church circles of late, and I mean Catholic church circles, because we're both Catholic. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well, and some of your influences there. But we we hear this term accompaniment quite a lot now, and you know, for me, I'm when I hear that I'm encouraged because I think that. This kind of didactic method of passing on the faith, you know, like talking head, telling you the, the, the different things to do may have worked at a particular time and place, but has a lot less efficiency now in terms of, you know, you could see it reflected by the numbers. But I, I see that as an extension of the fact that people have flaws. We do too. Everybody's got some level of brokenness and ultimately the fixing isn't the point, but it's the walking. It's the walking with, it's being with somebody that's kind of what we're called to do.
0: Well, when you look at when you look at our vision statement, our purpose statement, we empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless, not two and not four. We yeah. live in a two-four uh, society, and we should live in. We need to move back to the with.
1: Mm. This this may be a dangerous question, but you strike me as a guy who doesn't mind the occasional dangerous question. But how do you think the church is doing in this regard?
0: Uh, we're a failure, bro. Uh, and uh, you know the American church is uh, is failing. And uh, uh, and and look, that doesn't diminish the core of who we who we are. Uh, you know, as Roman Catholics, uh, but um, the the church is struggling. Uh, and and and. In that area, in that very very area. I mean, most of us are going to Mass on Sundays, uh, leaving, going to Macaroni Grill, going to spend a day on the lake, and then we're going to rinse and repeat that action, uh, uh, you know, the the next week. Whereas, you know, in the Roman Catholic Mass, at the end of the Mass— uh, there was the Ite Mise Est uh, in right. Latin, the dismissal that you proclaim as a deacon if you're on the altar. Uh, the mass is ended. Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And uh, really, um, what's being said here is that y- you've come, you've been empowered, the, the word and the Eucharist, you you have been filled now. Uh, and this is what you should say at your next mass, uh, Charlie: okay. is uh, get your ass out of the pew <laughs> uh, and into the community, and uh, and and let's get dirty together out there. Uh, but um, people people are not getting uh, the the real theology about that dismissal and what mm. we're supposed to be doing after that. And so we're just going to basically selfishly take care of ourselves. We come in, we get the Word, we get the Eucharist, and then bam, it's a, it's a, it's a chip-and-dip deal for the overwhelming vast majority of Catholics. And look, I'm not blaming them uh, as individuals. I'm, I'm blaming poor uh, catechesis on the part of the church and, and a fear uh, to challenge. And uh, look, there was a, um, a very famous bishop named Joseph Ratzinger Mm-hmm. Um, that said that if we preached the truth of the gospel every Sunday, the church would be half the size that it is. Wow. That's what he says, not what I say. Uh, that's one of the most, one of the more brilliant theologians in our modern historical times. Uh,
1: what is it that you think if, if you were going to issue a prescription at the sort of next, uh, you know, USCCB, a meeting on what people in the in the cler in the you know clergy maybe specifically or institutionally could do more or less of to drive that kind of get your ass moving message what would it be
0: look i think it goes back to you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free and um uh, and so uh if a culture of truth telling uh could build within the church um uh, uh you know from the top on down uh, over time we would be able to heal this and so what what is the truth uh, of the Catechism of the Catholic Church what is what is the truth of the social uh, teachings of the church um, you know I would tell you that a couple of years ago uh, it'll be two years ago this August uh, uh All of the dioceses in Texas, and maybe it was throughout the United States, did uh, you know had the big apology homilies over the sex abuse scandals, and all of our bulletins, you know, were listing, you know, all of the men who had failed us since about the nineteen forties, and and but they they failed to list uh the men who covered up those mm.
1: crimes
0: and um and that left a, a lot of roman catholics including myself just looking at this and and mystified by what the church is attempting to do mm. and and I'll tell you we're, we're all accustomed to sin because we're all deeply sinful um and we're in total alignment with our church, uh, but when the reconciliation happens, you got to go into the confessional with the with the with a truthful heart, and uh, you know most of the people that I talked to, I, I don't know anybody that I've ever talked to that didn't feel uh, abandoned by that uh, piece. So look, it's it's recognizing. What the truth of the state of the church is in order for the dialogue to really begin to figure out what the prescriptive nature of where we need to go is. I don't have that prescription, but uh, together, when all of us are together in the truthfulness of, of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, um, uh, there will be Christ there in our midst. No, they we have
1: to lean on that. Yeah, and it does begin with uh with that acknowledgement and with that truth and you're right i mean i see it reflected in the data all the time that the you know one of the biggest impacts over the last you know 20 30 years to participation and attendance has been you know that sort of scandal and people feeling you know you hear it all the time it's like why would i why would i trust that or go there and look at how they behave and even though there's a certain illogic in that reasoning as well right it's like saying i don't go to the gym because everybody's a slob there it's like well what does that have to do at the gym but nevertheless you can totally understand the, 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 the rationale that you know people aren't living what they're preaching and so you lose credibility and you lose authority and authenticity and then people are just you know kind of tossed to and fro as uh, as saint paul as saint paul says
0: yeah and look the church has become subject to the same divisions that you know the world of politics uh have and You know, we got all the smarty pants apologists, you know, behind their uh, iPhone keyboards uh, uh, spewing out, uh, you know, the fullness of the truth. When in reality, uh, you know, we're far more universal and far more welcoming than a, a lot of that stuff is. The people universality, yeah. I, I highly recommend somebody going to like, uh, you know, a, a canonization or something in Rome where, uh, uh, oh, my God, the the number of people in color and languages and thought, uh, you know, that's inside St. Peter's deal. And uh, I was there both for the elevation of uh, Ratzinger to the pe- papacy, and I was there for Mother Teresa's. Uh, uh, canonization and boy you want to talk about just universally gorgeously beautiful uh, it's amazing and it's it's the the liberals to conservatives to uh, you name it it's all inside that deal uh, oriented you know in, in one place and that's where we got to be and that's how we got to be welcoming uh, I mean geez I have friends that don't believe that Pope Francis is a a legitimate pope. And, uh, yeah. and I always go, you mean the one the Holy Spirit picked? That one? <laughs> that pope? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. I can see. Yeah. I see your point.
1: Yeah, the Holy Spirit is not a good picker. Getting caught up in the palace intrigue, um, for yeah. sure. There's yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the universality of the church is, is something that I know you have had the opportunity to experience the faith in a lot of different parts of the world, in Europe and in Latin America, et cetera that I know of, maybe other places. But it's one of those things that is like the least... It's like the it's like the best kept secret in the Catholic Church, right? I like going just to a Vietnamese mass here in L.A. or a Spanish mass, or even the, the 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 Eastern rites of the Church, right? Just to get a sense of that diversity, because that is what makes us, I think, you know, such a special place. Is the fact that in every language and every culture, in a variety of different ways, we're all sharing of that Lamb's Supper, and that's kind of the point. But yeah. again, back to that hermetically sealed, it's tough to see.
0: Yeah. And so, bro, let me, uh, let me give you a, uh, I mean, this is what my son and I do when we go to Rome Uh, and you're going to St. Peter's to go to mass, you know how you stand outside the sacristy and you're waiting for the guy to come out with the sign. And uh, you know, it's going to be English. It's going to be Vietnamese. It's going to be Spanish or French or whatever the language is. And you're, most people are waiting for their language of choice. My son and I, uh, uh, modus operandi is whoever comes out next (laughs) that's where we're going and uh and and about 80 or 90 percent of the time it's a language that we i mean we've never heard you know you you just don't know and there we are in the middle of mass you know and celebrating uh this extraordinary tradition Uh, uh, you know so if you're going if you're going to saint peter's uh go go try that on for size one time because you'll be uh, you'll be
1: surprised at how awesome it is people are surprised when i tell them in the diocese of los angeles mass is uh, celebrated every day in 40 languages and they're like what i, don't, I can't even name 40 languages but uh, but yeah that happens just even here in the u.s there's a ton of that yeah yeah alan i want to talk a little bit about your specific faith though and how that reflects obviously um, if you walk around Community First Village in Austin from the sculptures that are on the ground, the great art, much of, much of it actually created by the neighbors at Community First, and you see the you know, St. Francis statues, and then, then along comes Alan Graham, and he's got this big pectoral cross on his chest. It's clear to me, to an outsider, somebody who's been there for five minutes, that there's something else that's, that's behind all this and driving this. But I'm curious how that has been, how that has ever been a challenge in the work that you do, either directly from somebody you're trying to help, or somebody else who's weighed in on that as it relates to the work with homelessness.
0: Yeah, look, I've I've encountered uh, the division. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's been, uh, uh, you know, that it's up the totem pole too high uh on those encounters but uh, I've uh I've had quite a few things uh, thrown at me uh but what I really think that we've done more than anything is is built some bridges uh particularly between the division between catholicism and protestantism uh you know and 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 people look I've had people stand next to me and go uh you know I didn't realize how much Catholics love Jesus. And <laughs> and as incredible as that sounds to you and I, um you you can see how that poison has been perpetrated out there. Mm-hmm. And and I'm more sorry for you because if you wanna to me, if you want to be a great Protestant, and, and there are some great ones out there, lots of great, you, you should understand. Your DNA uh, and where you come from, and um, and anthropologically, you need to go back in time and understand your Roman Catholic roots that led to where you are. And the more you understand that, and 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 I hear lots of people, you know, talking about reading the early church fathers, and you know, uh, it, and and so a lot of that is starting to go away. You see Mary kind of making a a, a return into. People's lives, realizing that we're not elevating her to the, you know, uh, to the throne of Christ, and uh, and uh, what a, what a beautiful Christian, what the ultimate Christian witness, a Christian witness that frankly none of us could do, uh, and would do, uh, and uh, and so I think it's been a great, uh, you know, a great a great opportunity for me. That's that. That's where I come from. And I make no bones about it. Uh, and, you know, I tell people our core values within the organization, and there's, uh, there's six of them, uh, four of them, five of them, or four or five of them are word for word out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church.
1: Hmm. And what do people say when they find that out, or to the extent they know?
0: Well, when they read them— Like God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. You know, who who can argue that? Okay, by virtue of being created by God in his image, we are all called to live in community and relationship with him through each other. Alan, did you write that? Man, that's brilliant. The family is the original cell of social life.
1: Yeah, you know? that's a big one.
0: And then all members of the human family are equal in dignity. Those are the four. And then um, you know, the next one is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's as scriptural as it get. And then the last one is uh, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. Um, it you know, look, when they learn this, they begin to, you know, like, huh? And I go, you should read the catechism. There's, there's some things in there that, that you're just not going to believe. But I'm going to tell you, that's, that might, might, might be 10% of that whole deal. Mm. The rest of it, we're completely uh, in alignment on. Read it, and you'll understand what I mean. And if you don't want to uh, go down the Eucharist role, or uh, you know our belief and the impact of Mary, uh, you know, on the whole deal, that, that that's fine. You know, you know, that we don't have to overcome that. Or, you know, we're not we're not getting into the Bible alone or faith alone. Or, you know, we we don't need to. We don't need to.
1: Well, I think that there's a difference between describing the catechism, reading it and looking at it as kind of guideposts and living the principles that are inside of it. As an example of that, when I, you know, when I've interacted with you and with your team there, like I can see without having to define it, I can see the principle of subsidiarity. Now you say subsidiarity to somebody, they're going to go, what's that? Right? unless they're in the kind of, you know, apologetic or theologic kind of, di- you know, disposition, they're not going to even know what that even means. But it basically, you know, means that, you know, folks who are closest to an issue are the ones that maybe God is calling and equipping to support in that particular moment, right? And like, I see that because I I see it in the work that you do, but I also see it in how you share what you do with other people because you're not trying to have, you know, Alan Graham be the, you know, regional manager of, you know, five different, you know, villages that are in Texas as much as you are trying to inspire other people by what you've done to do something similar where they're at. And so, well, that to me is subsidiarity.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. And we uh we speak subsidiarity all the time, but we really speak it in the context of uh of government that, you know, uh government should only play a subsidiary role to you and I in mitigating these profound human issues that are out there, but the government's going to do it if we don't. And that that's what's happening today. So, we're not we the people are not engaging in these huge human issues, whether it's mental health, drug addictions, homelessness, uh, you name it. And we're abdicating this responsibility entirely uh, uh, to government who's going to do the best that they can to create policy, but they can't can't solve all these problems.
1: And government's not necessarily a good actor to heal anything. No, Um, no, no. They're going to put a Band-Aid
0: on a carotid artery bleed. And until we get in there and get uh, get dirty, and if we do, the the government will come alongside of us eventually and help us out because we do need help from a central authority. It's good to have roads, utilities, and fire and police and EMS. Uh, uh, there's lots of good things that come out of government.
1: My uh, pastor at Palm Sunday this year preached, or my old, actually my ex-pastor, uh, in his homily, which I'd never thought about, but he preached about this notion of, you know, Jesus walking into Jerusalem last week of his life on earth, and people are throwing palm fronds at him, and they're worshiping him as the incoming Messiah, and then a week later, they're spitting on him and crucifying him, and it was pretty much the same people and his thought you know his question to the congregation was how'd that happen in the course of a week and then he started to break down how the religious leaders and the sort of state and governmental leaders kind of got into bed with one another right in a very integrated way and the result was or at least in part the result was the crucifixion of jesus and he he said that as a way i think to make a similar point that you've made which is like this, this idea of getting up out of the pew and living that ita misayest and doing the thing, because certain things are incumbent upon us as, you know, brothers and sisters of these uh, of folks, and other things maybe are, in, are, are incumbent upon a centralized authority. But knowing those differences seems to be pretty important.
0: I love that comparison. I love that. You know how, how he's cracking that open. That's that's the beauty of scripture is the yeah. ability to uh, uh, look at it through a uh, you know a multifaceted prism. And uh, I get pretty excited when you know because that's what happens you know anywhere in society, man. Somebody gets something going, and then the next thing you know, it just starts spreading. And so now we're gonna we're gonna execute the King of King and the Lord of Lords thank god we did execute him though
1: yeah that's true because he saved our souls
0: yeah that that was a double-edged sword of the greatest magnitude
1: i have one we're getting close to the top of our time and i've got so many different ways that this could go we could spend two or three more hours here but i i want to talk about two things one of them is caravaggio and the other one is about jesus cussing so you take your pick which one you want to go at first Oh
0: I love jesus cussing man uh you know Hit I, love me with the it. T- I love the t shirt where uh uh you know i I cuss a little, but I still love jesus uh <laughs> and um uh, now look um uh you know and I'm not here to you know debate uh you know with people so don't don't send me or charlie emails on this one <laughs> if you don't mind but i, I think about christ Uh and how inclusive and awesome he is and it, it was when he was here on earth. I, I think about uh, him basically choosing as his disciples, his apostles, um, some pretty broken people uh, and pretty tough, rough people. Uh, Fisherman, as an example, and I, I'm, a, I'm an outdoors guy. Uh, Heck, I just had a, a multi-day fishing trip down to New Orleans on the coast, uh, the Gulf Coast, and, you know, we have fishing guides. I've been around uh, this uh, all of my life, and um, I've met these uh, calloused hands, calloused hearts, uh, calloused uh, men and women working hard on the coastline. Um, with flavorful language and drinking habits, and uh, and all that, and thinking that this is who Christ chose uh, to be his disciples, and to think about him sitting around the campfire at night or whatever uh, deal they were doing, and um, you know, pounding down some wine, uh, those guys telling some jokes—they don't—they don't know that this is. God's only son, uh, uh, they struggled with that all the way till beyond the end. That's right. And uh, uh, and in, in order for Christ to meet them where they are, he had to be where they were. Mm-hmm. And that's why, um, you know, we make things out to be sin, um, like saying the F-bomb or something mm-hmm. like that, when in reality, that may not be what God is is looking at and yeah. and so uh, the American church in particular has anesthetized Jesus. Uh, we hang him on a crucifix with a little towel wrapped around his uh, uh, you know waist and you know you know one drop of blood coming out of his side. And then you go down to the Hispanic culture in Mexico or something like that, and his body's ripped apart and there's giant hunks of flesh. Ripped off, and uh, I had a buddy of mine make a cross. It's hanging on my wall right here, and it's it's got Jesus's package. Mm-hmm. He would have been naked. That's he was there, completely b- trying to be humiliated, hanging on the cross with his body ripped to shed and his uh, and his um, you know happy little friend hanging out, uh, and and that that is the real Jesus. So. Um, and that was the real Jesus on the cross, and we sh- we should be comfortable being affronted with, you know, that piece of it. So, um, I think I think Jesus hung with the boys, the, the the boys and the girls, the prostitutes, the crack addicts, the heroin junkies, whoever they were of the time, the fishermen, uh, the rough tumble people, and he also hung out with the the, the rich and in all that he was complete perfection and uh and and i believe he said a few cur- curse words and uh laughed at some pretty good uh, off-color jokes
1: well the the reality of it is is the church has taught for 2000 years about about Jesus's uh 100% fully human uh you know nature and being right so he was you know you think about him you know working on a bench or table or as a stonemason and hitting his finger with a hammer you know that would have hurt who knows what would have come out so but he was 100% human and we and we although he was also 100% God and we struggle with that with that idea there's another there's another point real quick Alan that you made too which I think is interesting about the way that you view the world and we sometimes forget this but I know you, how you feel about this, because I've heard you talk about it, is the, the sort of despised on both sides of this kind of economic divide, right? You've got, obviously, the most outcast and despised and broken and poor and unhoused and all the different things that come with that. And then you've got this other category, and in some cases, the benefactors to a lot of the work that you do, which in their own way are sort of ostracized or thought about you know, ungenerously. But I don't know how often we think of that group.
0: Well, um, you know, they're vilified as well. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to open up the paper and, you know, read about how terrible Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg or just name the rich person. uh, And uh, we're going to go vilify them. Uh, and then uh, we, we're going to vilify the uh, homeless, the drug addict, the alcoholic, the prostitute, and our, our our goal is to build the bridge and connect the two. And that's what we do is uh, uh, we bring both parties together right here in the middle of, uh, of the community first village in in in, in Austin, Texas, and uh, it's it's amazing how a lot uh, how, how how similar we all are. Uh, the only major differences is typically our bank account.
1: Yeah, that's true. We can't forget we're all God's kids, and I think that's the important point there. All right, so 60 seconds, Alan, before we get to our final segment, though, hit me with Caravaggio because that blew me away. Give me, give me, the, give me the, high, the, the high summary for our listeners of, uh, of Caravaggio.
0: Well, the high summary basically is the uh, Caravaggio's uh, incredulity of uh, Thomas, uh, painted in about 1602 thereabouts. Uh, the original hangs in Potsdam, uh, Germany, and it's 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 got Thomas who uh, wasn't going to believe that uh, Christ had. Uh, uh, resurrected unless he could see the nail marks in his feet and put his finger in his side. And uh, and so this picture has got uh, uh, probably Peter and Paul looking over the top as Christ is gently guiding uh, uh, Thomas's finger into his open, gaping wound about a digit and a half uh, that far into the deal, uh, with Thomas grimacing the whole time and looking away, not even being able to see it. While he's wearing his uh, tattered clothing, yet the angelic Christ is just gently guiding that finger mm. uh, into that, and I believe that uh, this is an effort. Uh, and the moment that that finger enters, uh, Thomas responds, "My Lord and my God," which we used to say at the end of the elevation of the of the Eucharist back in the uh, Tridentine uh, Mass. And, sure, uh, uh, and uh, um, but I think. That this is an invitation for us to all jump into the woundedness of the world, into the nasty, gaping woundedness of the world, to get in there, full boat, and and there's Christ uh, on the other side welcoming us, so that we too uh, can acknowledge and proclaim, "My Lord and my God." That's the sixty-second 60 version. If you ever I look love, deep, it.
1: yeah. You ever want the full one? You got to spend three days with Alan Graham that's out right. in Austin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but what a great what a great note to end on because I do think it's important for us to take that step to actually get into that messiness. It's an intentional thing. It's not something that's going to come and knock on your door. Maybe sometimes it does. But for the most part, it requires our getting motivated, becoming intentional about it and doing it. And what, we'll, what you'll find, um, which I know you have in your life, is that it is self, it's, it's self-giving and self-fulfilling in a sense that it powers you as you do it. If you don't think you have the strength to jump in, you probably don't. But as you jump in, you actually get the strength to keep jumping in. That's Amen. sort of the irony. Yeah.
0: Amen. That is the irony.
1: Well, Alan, um, thank you so much for for being on the show. I got to tell you, my my prayers are for the continued prosperity of everything that you're doing there. I know what a great impact it's had on me and my wife and my family by extension. And, And my great hope is that, you know, everybody just dials into what you're doing down there and gets, you know, inspired and encouraged to play their role in this great mission that we all have.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it, Charlie. It was awesome.
1: Yeah. So uh, great to have you. We'll include, by the way, all the sh- in the show notes, all the the document, the books you mentioned, um, and we'll include the Caravaggio as well, so people can check it out. All right. So to close this out, Alan, three questions at the end of every show. It's called Wait. What? Are you ready to play? Yeah. Let's do it. Alright so we're going to start with question number one. It's a fill-in-the-blank question, Alan, that may be nearer than you think to the heart of your mission. So in 1866, Colonel Charles Goodnight, a cattleman along with his partner Oliver Loving, prepared to drive a herd of 2,000 Longhorns from Texas to Colorado. It would be a long dangerous trek in rough country without the convenience of many towns along the route. So Charles Goodnight Got the idea to rebuild an army surplus wagon with durable hardwood and equip it with cabinets, cubbies, shelves, and drawers to hold food and utensils and a large water barrel on the side. This very first American food truck was called the blank. Truck wagon. Nailed it. Beautiful. Great job. Nice work. And I figured as a Texan, you can't get that one wrong. (laughs)
0: Thank God. But we have
1: one here, so all right beautiful all right question number two alan i know that the basilica of our lady of guadalupe in mexico city has a special part in your personal story so which of these is false about this great basilica which is false about the basilica of our lady of guadalupe in mexico city is it a pilgrimages have been made to this site uninterrupted since 1431 is it b The famous Tilma of Juan Diego suffered no damage during an explosion that nearly destroyed the entire basilica in 1921. Or is it C? The name Guadalupe is a Spanish misadaptation of an Aztec word. Which of those is false? Boy,
0: it's either uh, A or C, and I'm going to go. Boy, this is hard. I don't know if there's been pilgrimages since 1431. Uh, I'm gonna go with, uh, with,
1: with C. Oh, I knew you were about to pick A, and you would have been right about, if you
0: picked. I was about to pick A.
1: Yeah. you were about to pick A. Yeah, it actually yeah. is. That actually is false because the okay. pilgrimages began on that site in 1531. So you should. You, you, you were okay. you're right. Yeah. yeah, Trust it. Trust in your instincts. But the yeah. other two are true. Uh, famously, uh, in 1921, a bomb that got planted in a flower vase near the altar exploded and basically blew everything up except for the tilma in fact they have i'm sure you saw it that iron crucifix there that got just all dismantled to hell and it yeah exactly and uh but but that cloak survived yeah god
0: took the blast
1: yeah absolutely and and also it is true that the name guadalupe uh, San Diego used the name Cuatlaxupe, which is Aztec for she who crushes the serpents, but the Spaniards heard Guadalupe, so that's what they ended up with. Uh, yeah, so sure. there you go. Alright, Alan, last question. Time machine question. Here goes. You get a chance to try This one you can't get wrong, so you're, you're in good shape. You're going to end up at 500 no matter... Uh, sorry, at 666 <laughs> no, no matter what happens. Alright, Alan, you get a chance to travel back in time to a small village in Italy in the year 1207. You quickly realize by the steady stream of people making their way to the village church that it's Sunday and Mass is about to begin. You enter the beautiful chapel and Mass is lovely. The deacon gives the homily. And though your Italian is not very good, you realize from the responses of the people around you that the deacon's preaching is striking a major chord with the congregation. After Mass, the priest and deacon are outside greeting the congregation. And you notice the deacon speaking to a young woman who is enraptured by what he's saying. You approach, and that's when it hits you that you've seen this deacon before. In images, and saint cards, and curiously, even in garden sculptures. Could this deacon be the great Saint Francis of Assisi? You don't even have time to consider the question before you hear from behind you, the parents of the young woman are calling out to her in Italian, Chiara, which means Claire. The girl turns from the deacon and walks towards you reluctantly, returning to her parents and she approaches you and she smiles, and you recognize her too. Could this be the great St. Clair of Assisi? Now, you're super excited about the prospect of meeting either of these people, but you've only got a moment to decide if you're going to speak to the young woman or the deacon who is now making his way back into the church. Alan, do you approach either of them, and if so, which one?
0: Well, uh, the deacon would be Francis of Assisi, right? And. Uh, I would want to meet uh, Francis, but it would be a very close second to want to meet Claire.
1: I love that. It's a very honest answer, but I appreciate that. Yeah, St. Francis is great. One of my all-time favorites, one of my all-time heroes. Yeah, Alan, what a great privilege to have you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, God bless you on your ministry, brother, and and, uh, you're welcome to come by the show anytime.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Deacon Charlie. Appreciate it. God bless you.
1: And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. Uh, please share this show. Share this episode with somebody who can benefit by this great message and the great work that Alan and the team are doing down at Community First Village. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A usaorg Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.